First uh, John four thirteen through twenty one. Here we go. Here we go. <clears throat> By this we know that we abide in Him and Him in us, because He has given us of His Spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray, please. Father God, as we study your word this morning, Father, may, may, we, uh, may we know, see, believe, uh, understand more clearly the love that you have for your people, the, the special, unique, specific love that you have for your children. And Father, may we believe in such a way that it that it changes the way we talk and the way we act and and what we do, Father, for your glory. But may we first understand that this love for us does not originate in us, and we do not merit an ounce of it. We love because you first loved us. Father, for your glory and your name's sake and for our joy in you, it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. We've been talking about this idea of love for quite some time now. Uh, if you've noticed, if you haven't picked up on this already, in First John, uh, he's very cyclical in the way that he writes. He's going to hit these themes over and over and over again. And one of these themes is the idea of knowing and abiding in God's love, seeing his love, experiencing his love, knowing and understanding and and nuancing, if you will, his love. And so we've talked about love a lot. We've talked about the world's definition of love, God's definition of love, the fact that love finds its origin in God, that all of our love is due to God. It's not a priority list. It's not that God comes first, and then my wife, and then my kids, and then my job. I mean, I mean my church, and then my job. Uh, it's, it's all of my love is God's, and then I love through that I love others with that love that's in us from God. And love for others looks really like Christ. If we're going to talk about like what's the faithfulness, what's the, the bare minimum faithfulness, what's it look like to love others? It's, it's, it's loving like Christ did, and that is sacrificial, even laying your life down for someone else. Not just preferences, not just the little things that we'd, we'd like to have, but actually laying our lives down for each other. And all of this being a mark of someone who has been born again, that God has given life to, new life to. They have a new heart. God resides in them. God abides in them. And then out of this comes these people who love each other out of this love for God. But here's the question that, that I want to pose this morning, and I would like to hopefully answer from this passage. This is, what does God's love do? Like, what's it do? And I'm going to think pretty practically here, but what does his love do according to this passage? Like, it certainly, it sent Jesus to the cross, which has these effects for us, but what does God's love do to us? Maybe another way to ask the question would be, what are the markers of God's love in his people? Not just like, what are we doing 
and in response to God's love. But what does God's love look like in his people? So again, it's easy for us, it's easy for me particularly to go, okay, God loves me, so therefore I must do this. That, that's easy. Well, I want to think before we get to the we do this or we look this way, but what does this look like for God to love his people? What are the core fruits then, secondly, of God's love for his people? And that first part of that very first verse in this section, John says these words, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. And what, what I want to do before we get into it's going to make my intro a little bit longer uh, today, but I, I want to think about this word abide. And I want to define this word abide a little more clearly for us, uh, a little more robust, so that we can, as we then process through what's it look like to be loved by God and to abide in God's love, that we can think about that with a little more meat to it. The idea of abiding in him and him and us, this, this word abide is, is basically the act of receiving and trusting all that God is for us in Christ. And we're, we're going to get into like specifically I mean, trying to help us fill in the gaps there, but that's kind of the core idea. The act of receiving and trusting all that God is for us in Christ. That's what John means specifically when he says... Abide in him. Think about a passage like John 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Go read John 6. Go read John 15. Those are great passages if you want to understand abide. But very briefly, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you've read some of John, you see these passages about the the branch and the vine and such. Listen, if a branch, we all understand how trees work to some measure. Listen, if a branch remains or abides or is attached and continues to be attached to the vine in such a way that it's receiving all that the branch has to give, then that is the picture of, of what John means by abiding in him. That that branch continues to receive its nourishment, its its livelihood, its breath from the vine that it's attached to. Listen, the closest thing I I can come up with to relate this to us is, is, uh, and maybe this speaks to, to some of my personality or sanctification, but it's going to be on the negative here. So for some... Think about the idea of comfort. Like you welcome comfort. You trust comfort. You drink comfort. You eat. You savor it. You fight for a stress-free and comfortable life. You're abiding in comfort. That is the vine that you seek to continually be attached to. For others, maybe it's control. You can deal with the stress so long as you feel like you're in control. You welcome, you trust, you drink, you eat, you savor, you fight for having control. For others, maybe it's affirmation and and fear of man. You want others to like you, so you welcome, you trust, you drink, you eat, you savor, you fight for getting affirmation. You see, these things are the bread of life, or is the bread of life, these things for each of us become the bread of life, the way to life. If I could have it, I will be living truly. I will never thirst again. I will be satisfied. You're abiding in that. Let there be light. There we go. So now that you know what I'm talking about here, Abiding in Christ means this, and let me quote someone, trusting in Jesus, remaining in fellowship with Jesus, connecting to Jesus so that all that God is for us in him is flowing like a life-giving sap into our lives. 
All that he is. I, I see that and I, I need that. I, I want that. Like, do you wake up in the mornings and say, I gotta make sure I'm connected to that tree? I gotta make sure that my vine is, a, that my branch is attached to the vine. If not, I'm not gonna make it through today. You wake up in the morning knowing you need to abide and wanting to abide. I want to be careful. I mean, for some of us, that looks like I've got to spend 30 minutes in the Word. Or for, some, for, for me, it's often I'm just going to spend time into the, in the Word until I, to some measure, feel like I'm attached to the vine. <clears throat> Sometimes that's 10 minutes, and I'm like, all right, Lord, here we go. Let's go. Let's do this day. <clears throat> Other days, it's like 45 minutes, and I'm like, oh, man, I still... But I got to get on with the day. Lord, I'm going to trust that you're keeping me attached to this vine because I don't feel it. Now, what flows in this abiding? The quote I read talked about the sap, like the, the life-giving blood of the tree. In John 15, 7, he says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 9 of the same chapter, as the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. And then verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. These are not just passages saying just, hey, abide in me and thou shalt be happy. There's this practical, real sense of knowing God's love and being filled with joy that comes from the life-giving branch that is Jesus. Receiving the love of Jesus for the Father and for his people, and the joy that Jesus has in the Father and in us. It means sharing the joy, the love, the words with Jesus. So John literally means abide in him, and by that he means abide in God's love. To know his love, to, to, to receive it, to, to grasp it, to, to grab a hold of it, to seek after it, to long for it, to do whatever it takes to know it. Right? I mean, think about those, the things I listed, those things that you fight hard after. I got to have it. Got to get it. Those are the things you're abiding in. This is much better than those things. So if that's what it means to abide in him, I want to think about the effects of the recipients of God's love. The effects of the recipients or on the recipients of those who have received God's love and are abiding in God's love. The first one and the first thing is this. God's love gives us assurance of his presence. God's love gives us assurance of his presence. Back with me to verse 13 through 16. He says this, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love of God, the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Listen, all throughout the scriptures, especially illustrative within the Old Testament, is the crucial value of God's presence. That God would dwell with his people. That he would tabernacle with his people. That his glory, his Shekinah glory, would be present with his people. And it meant God's blessing, God's kingdom, God's people, God's guidance, etc. Again, the question I pose is, do you get up each morning wanting to be assured of God's presence in your life? Listen, his love gave us, and we'll give us a couple things here. His love gave us the gift of the Spirit. His love has given us the gift of the Spirit. Out of his love comes the gift 
of the Spirit. We get to abide in God because He has given us His Spirit. This is not something you and I just can do on our own. But He's given us the Spirit so that we can sense and walk with His presence. That, that not his, his presence just would abide in some kind of temple or some kind of tabernacle, but that, that He would indwell His people and His very presence would be inside of His people. Now, again, we talked a few weeks ago about these different voices, these different spirits and discerning which is the spirit of God and which is the spirit of the world. And so how do we know which is the right spirit? How do we know? How do we go? Is that the presence of God in me or is that the presence of the world in me? I think verse 12 at least begins to answer this, which is right before this passage we just read. But basically the idea is if we love one another and his love is perfected in us, that, that this, this love of God being moved through us to each other, that if the Spirit in us is moving in that direction, that, that we can be as close to certain as we can, that this is the Spirit of God, that He is moving in us His love to, to love each other. I think at that point we need to ask the question, then am I loving my brothers and sisters, meaning the body of Christ? Am I loving them, laying my life down for them? If so, then then I think there's reasonable conclusion that the Spirit of God that He has given you is alive and well, that His presence is in you. And then His presence then is being felt by the people around you. That's part of the beauty of the picture. But the Spirit doesn't just come in to flow out, but He comes in to help us believe, trust, savor, rest, and receive all that God is for us in Christ. That's amazing. You and I can't do that on our own. But that God would send His Spirit to awaken that part of us, to, to help turn our cold hearts to, to warm Loving, trusting hearts to increase our trust, to increase our resting and our receiving. It's not just a a mystical reach for anything that feels good in the moment. But it's also not this, this, this presence of God. It's not this just cold, dead uh, mental or intellectualism either. It's not this, I just got to go feel good about God, and it's not this, well, I just got to go fill my head with knowledge, but, but it's this combining of the two, that as I'm knowing God, as, as the Spirit helps me to know God, then He helps me to trust God. He helps me to know Him, understand Him, and helps me to rest and to receive and to savor and to trust Him. Listen, you see all over this passage, there's this sense of abiding and this sense of testifying. So there's this sense of, of proclaiming what we know and this sense of abiding in what we know, resting in it, longing for it, to know it. I want to point to passages you can look up later like 2 Peter 1, passages that talk about the role of the Spirit Spirit's not just to make us feel emotional, although he certainly is good at that. And I think that's part is to help increase our affections. But his role is ultimately to lead our hearts to know and to cherish God as he has chosen to reveal himself. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, God's Spirit is sent to lead the hearts of men and women to leave behind the lies concerning God and behold what God has said about Himself. We have the gift of the Spirit to see that Jesus is the Savior, and we have the gift of the Spirit to testify to that reality. We have the gift of the Spirit to convince our hearts that He does indeed love us. That's part of this Him abiding in us. Is this sense of He is 
in us. He is loving us. He is caring for us. And the Spirit is the one uniquely gifted to help us understand, receive, trust that reality. Listen, you can be even in the body of Christ And if the Spirit is not helping us understand the love of God coming in from other people, then we're up the creek without a paddle. We have to have the Spirit to help us understand God's abiding in us and to increase our longing to abide in Him. But His love ultimately has given us the gift of the Spirit to be assured of His presence. It just looks different ways. But just notice, this is the thing I want you to to please note, is that the Spirit is always coupled with the Word in the Scriptures. That there's this sense of the Spirit's primary role is to help us grasp who God has revealed Himself to be in His Word. It's not something that's not grounded or not off to do its own thing. We are assured of His presence because the Spirit guides our hearts along to the reality of His presence. But not only does His love give us the Spirit, but His love gave us the gift of a Savior. The Father gave the gift of a Savior to guarantee His presence among His people. To guarantee His eternal abiding presence. Presence with his people. He sends Jesus to wash them clean so that they might house his presence forever. John 14, or the, the, the verse 14 in this passage says, We have seen and testify to this. What, what has he seen and testify to? What's he, what has he seen and what does he testify to? What did he observe, or the apostles, particularly in this passage, Observe firsthand that they must testify to. Here's the answer. Everything that the Father is for us in Christ. That's what he's testifying to. Everything that God is in the Son, the Father. These are some examples from 1 John alone. You can get the list from me afterwards. I'm going to fly through it. The Father is in the Son, the Father revealed the word of life, brought eternal life, cleanses us from all sin, gave us an advocate, propitiates our sins or or takes the wrath for our sins. He gives us an example to follow, sent the Messiah, makes possible the new birth, sent the righteous and sinless one, takes away our sin, destroys the work of the devil, sacrificed his son, gives us life. This is what they have seen and testify to. You understand that to confess Jesus as a savior of the world is to confess these truths and certainly more. And only someone who has... God abiding in them can confess, believe, cherish, savor, trust, hold on to these things. Why? In part because they fly in the face of the self-righteousness that rules this world and oftentimes our own hearts. Because these things say we're not righteous on our own. They say we need someone, something else outside of us. His love gave us the gift of a Savior. And we testify to this, he says. Now, these verse 14 and 15, very quickly here, are are, are missional at heart. They're moving outward. It's us moving outward with what God has done inside of us. We now move outward. We're missional in response to these passages. Now remember with me, what do we all struggle with according to 1 John and particularly this passage? The entire world, including you and I, to know his love, drink his love, savor his love, to abide in him. We all struggle with that. That's part of the implication of this passage. He's telling us to abide in him because he knows we struggle to abide in him. But we need to abide in him. We must abide in him. And so what do we all need? 
We all need the word, the spirit, and people around us who confess that Jesus is all that God has promised to be. That God is love and he has proven this to our frail minds and hearts. Some of us forget that that we are all unbelievers at times. What I don't mean by that is that we lose our salvation for those of us who are redeemed, but we become functional unbelievers. And so we need people around us to testify to these truths. Only as you and I are settled together in God's love for us, will we effectively go to the world around us and rightly confess that Jesus is the Son of God. As we abide in his love and know more clearly the reality of his love abiding in us, then we go and we testify to his grace, to his mercy, to his love specifically. It will happen. It must happen. We go. But if we're not careful, if we go and we're not convinced of God's love for us, and I get it, that 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 wanes, that it moves up and down the scale of that. Like some days I, I got it and some days I don't. But as we go, as we are convinced of his love and we go and we testify to it, then we can see the world changed around us. God's love assures of his presence. His love gave us the gift of a Savior. The second thing I want us to see is that God's love gives us confidence at judgment. God's love gives us confidence at judgment. When I say us, I mean those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, those who have been given new life and new birth, we have confidence at judgment. Look at verse 17. It says this, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is also, because he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Let's pause for just a second. I want you to think about this question with me. Have you ever thought about your consideration of the future? And how it impacts the present. Like what you believe to be certain or true tomorrow. And how that impacts your today. Right? That's why like, a lot of times anxiety comes from this prophesying of the future. I believe this is going to happen. I fear this is going to happen. So based on that prophecy, I will be anxious today. Or in two hours, I think this is going to happen. Or in 10 minutes, right? You're getting ready to walk into a meeting that you're like really like worried about, right? Because why? Because you think these things are going to happen. And maybe they do, maybe they don't. But it's based on that prophecy. And how we perceive someone's thoughts towards us in the present affects how you believe they will treat us in the future. Now, again, I think we were created to, to walk this way in, in some measure, not necessarily to be anxious, but that the past and the present and the future be inextricably connected. Like they, they go together, that we look to the past, we look to the future, and it helps us as we understand the present and so on and so forth. Now, certainly we can assess those things wrong, wrongly and so believe wrongly in the present. But the fact that they're connected, I think, is ultimately a good thing. It's a good thing of God that, that we can look to his past work and we can say in the past, okay, because he's done this in the past, I believe he's going to be for sure in the future. And so now in the present, I can, I can live with a measure of certainty. And that's part of what John is wanting us to do here. John's argument is this concerning fear and judgment. Loving others, possessing the Spirit, Confessing the Son and mutually abiding in God and His love bring God's love to its full 
and intended goal, its perfect purpose in our lives. So, so that's, John is saying, the work of the Spirit, the, this uh, mutual abiding, the confessing of the Son, and the mutual love of the body. He's saying all those things work to bring God's love to its perfect conclusion, like to its maturity. That's what it means to, to have the love perfected. So it's going to bring it to maturity, to, to its purpose. Now, what are its purposes? That's where we get into this passage. What's the part of the purpose of God's love in it becoming mature in his people? Here it is. That two realities will become settled deep in our souls. First one is this. Confidence that when I stand before God on judgment day, he will see me as he sees his son. And two, that I would, very closely related, but that I would not have fear of that day. So this perfecting of love in his people serves the purpose and how we see that love perfected, right? That's the confessing and the loving in the body and the, and the abiding in him and the branch. All of that serves the purpose of perfecting his love towards the purpose or the, the goal that we would live with confidence, knowing that on that day when he comes to judge the wicked and the evil and the righteous, that, that we would stand before him as righteous as his son. How is this possible? Right, that he would, it's possible because when we stand before him, look at that phrase back in verse 17. To have confidence for the day of judgment because as he, who is that? Who's the he in the pronoun? Say it, Jesus. Because as Jesus is so, also are we in this world. That's amazing. I the love of God will have done its perfect work as it is applied to that day when we stand before him and know without a doubt any longer that he sees us as he sees his son. And his love in us will be perfected. We will be convinced. It will be at its maturity. He says we can be confident for the future. Love has this intended goal. The word perfect, again, carries the idea of completion, being brought to maturity. And abiding in the love of God gives us confidence, boldness for the judgment day. Listen, judgments are real. It's coming. Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else. Jesus came to prepare people for that day. He didn't come to just be a nice teacher. He came to save his people from rightful judgment. But not only that you and I would be like okay on that day, but that we would be confident in that day, that we would stand restful, assured, still, steady, confident on that day. Again, why? Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Let me quote someone. The stunning statement means the Father treats the saints the same way he does his Son, Jesus Christ. God clothes believers with the righteousness of Christ, and he grants the Son's perfect love and obedience. Someday believers will stand before God's throne as confidently as their Lord and Savior does. Think about that for a second. When they reach that final accounting, they will see the fulfillment of this passage in verse, chapter 3, verse 2, where he says this, We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. 
today, I can live with confidence that on that day, I will be seen as Jesus is seen before the Father. I don't know about you, but like I struggle with that, right? Like, how can I be seen that way on that day? Have you seen the the way I was this morning? Did you see the where my mind went to the other day? Did you see the anger that came out of my heart? There's no way. And yet John says that as love reaches its intended goal, I will become increasingly convinced that on the day that my Redeemer comes for me and judgment comes, that on that day I can walk with confidence. Like, have, you, have you thought, like, thought about that picture at like God's judgment? Like, like, and I don't want to be a part of that because I'm sinful and I can't. I, I, I will be judged and I will be thrown into hell. And, and he says that on that day, I can walk with confidence to his presence, to before his throne. I mean, it doesn't mean right where I'm walking like, right? All right, God, I'm here. Good thing Jesus took all that for me. But I can walk into his presence, confident, humble expectancy that he, when the gavel drops, I am seen as his son. Washed clean. He says we shall have no fear. When God's love has reached its intended goal and accomplished its perfect work, fear before God is driven out and the dread of punishment is vanquished. What a joy and blessing that is. The threat of punishment disappears. Love never fears judgment or punishment. You understand that God never punishes his people. You know that? God disciplines his people. So as a parent, I try not to use the word punishment when I'm working with my kids because punishment is, it can be punitive, meaning like it's just an exchange. You did this wrong, here's your consequence. But what I'm giving you is, is discipline. What I'm giving you is a consequence aimed at your restoration, at your redemption, ultimately. That's what I'm giving you. God does that to his kids. He loves those whom he disciplines, indeed. But we don't fear punishment. We don't fear fear ultimate separation from God. We fear not these things. And that's what he's saying. Someone who is struggling, listen, listen to me. If you're, if, if you're fearing that or if you walk in this, like, I got to hide my sin or I got to protect myself from others seeing this or, or whatever, or, like, and we're not able to face the reality of our brokenness, we are likely walking in fear of this judgment and love has not found, love has not been perfected in us. The reality is, is this is all of us. And whoever fears the Lord and his punishment does not know fully the love of God. That's what John tells us here. I think there's a couple problems here. Not problems in the passage, but problems with us, of course. First problem is this. Many of us don't fear punishment for our sins. Like we don't, but for the wrong reason. Because we don't understand how sinful we are next to a holy God. And so we don't walk with, we don't have fear, which we're not supposed to have fear, but we don't have fear because we don't understand the problem. So the first question, do, do you fit into that problem? That problem, number one, do you understand the, the problem? But then the second category, some of us fear punishment and judgment for the right reasons in the sense that we understand how sinful we are, but we don't understand God's love for us. And both of those problems affect the perfecting of, our, of God's love through us for each other. And it also impacts our understanding and living and trusting the reality of God's love for us. So that first problem, some of us don't fear but for the wrong reasons. It means you're trusting in your righteousness. 
very practically, oftentimes the, the result is a lack of love for others because you have little room to know God's love for you. These people tend to be harsh and sensitive and patient, legalistic. But on the second problem, fear because we know our sinfulness, yet we struggle to believe God's love. The love he has for us in Christ. And the result is oftentimes the same. is a lack of love for others because our fear is crowding out the knowing of God's love. There's no fear in love. Again, these, ten peop- these people tend to hide in their shame, guilt, legalism, harshness even sometimes. If my view of God's love for me is small, I will run and hide like Adam and Eve do in the garden, right? They, they go and hide. Adam, Eve, where are you? He says, Adam, where are you? That's why it's that's why in John I, I, I write to I want you to know these things. What's he wanting us to know? He wants us to know the love of God, so that it would drive out this fear of punishment, understanding God's love, and how are we going to know God's love? That is through these the love of the body, the presence of the spirit, the testifying of the gospel to each other. That's those things that bring this love in us to perfection over time. One truth I'm going to get to in this next passage, but I want to tell you right now is this. Whether you know God's love in the midst of your fear or not, changes not the reality of his love for you. Whether you know it in the moment to be true or not, does not change the reality of it. I'll get to why in just a few minutes. This is why we need the word, the spirit, the body of Christ. We need someone else to speak of God's love, his great love to us. And then today, that we might walk in humble confidence, fearing not the judgment of our sin. Some evidence of someone who's not fearing the the love of God is someone who can face their sin. That can deal with their brokenness. That can be gentle and yet firm with the sin in another. I can can help you with this sin that I think is present in your life because I believe that there's no fear of judgment for you. There's nothing for you to be worried about. So we can deal with this and have God's love, see it perfected in you. And then when I'm confronted in sin, if I'm walking in the Spirit, then I can rest that no matter what is revealed in this moment, I don't have to fear judgment. I don't have to fear God's punishment because Jesus took it. The last thing I want you to see is this, is that God's love gives us the strength to channel his love to others. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Listen, you cannot love God without loving your brother or sister. Listen, I hear this often. Oh, I love these people. And then we go do stupid things that display and say that we love ourselves supremely. We should be asking the question, is this loving to these people? I say I love them. But I love John's logic here. How in the world, here's what, if I won't put it in my terms. How in the world... Could you love God whom you can't see if you struggle to love the person that you can't? That's John's argument. You say, well, have you seen these people? Right? Have you dealt with them? Yeah, I have. Right? Here, here's where I struggle. Here's a, because they should know better. Right? It's easier to love these people who shouldn't know better, but these people who should know better, right? The people who are in the body, they should know better. That's what makes it hard to love them. Um, I think that the word for that would be called a Pharisee.
here, here's, here's to put John's logic in a little bit different phrase. If you don't have the capacity to die to self for God's children, then you cannot love their father. But if you know the love of the father and you love the father, you will have the capacity to die for his children, to lay your life down for his kids. Listen, when we love fellow sinners, it demonstrates for all to see the love of God for sinners that was on display at that bloody cross. And he's saying, if we know the love that was displayed for us at that bloody cross, then we can certainly, easily even, love the people that are sitting next to us. Now, I want to pause for just a moment. I don't know about you, but I struggle to abide in God's love for me. Each day. It's a struggle each and every day. Multiple moments a day. To treasure him, to trust him, to rest in him, to find my refuge in him. So often I walk like a zombie from one task to the next, like an addict looking for my next temporary fix. Oftentimes walking, suppressing the reality of my sinfulness, ignoring it. Often faced with the greater understanding of my sin. And I oftentimes feel alone or broken by that sin like a slave in a cage. Only let out to pursue my master flesh's desires. And sometimes all this happens before noon. There's this incredible phrase, short, clear, explicit, and absolutely eternally life-changing. Everyone's got that real short verse memorized, right? Jesus wept, right? So, right, you, you got that one memorized? Memorize this one. It's short and sweet, too. We love Because why? He first loved us. We love only because he first loved us. He took the initiative, not us. He took the first step, not us. Our love originates in God's love for us. Our hope Even in feeling loved, our hope is not ultimately in the way we feel about things or the way we think about things. Our hope is ultimately in God's merciful love for his people that we didn't want and we instead were looking elsewhere for. You know what that means right now? Oh, child of God, that God's love for you is not affected by your feeling of its reality. It doesn't change a thing. It didn't change a thing when you hated him. He loved you then. And now, whether you feel it or not, he loves his children. God's love for you is not changed by how much wrong or right you do. His love is deeply rooted in his tender mercy for you. The mercy you don't deserve but desperately need. Listen, for those longing to abide in Christ and all that he is, our Savior, our Redeemer, the glorious one above all creation, for those when God sees you, listen to me, he sees You in this world as he sees Jesus. Wow. Right? He sees you 
as he sees the one whom he has loved for all creation, for all time, who has existed with him in perfect harmony, perfect communion for all of eternity, the way he sees him and loves him, the way he views him and loves him is the way he sees us in this world now. Whether you and I feel that or not, And he has done this for his children because he has set his love upon them. His love gives us assurance of his presence. It gives us confidence to stand before his judgment. It gives us boldness to walk through our sin and the brokenness of this world. It gives us the strength to love each other. No child of God, can you see that on the cross where Jesus died for you, that God said, I love you. Come abide in my love. Trust, savor, receive all that I have promised to be for you in Christ. He says to us, I love you, my dear child. Let's pray. Father, I confess that even in this moment, even in this moment, that I am struggling to be convinced of your love for me. So many other thoughts and emotions and and things flying around in my mind and in my heart, like I, I feel it. I know it. The struggle is real. And yet there's this little verse that says that my love for you is only because you first loved me. That your love for me, for your children, in a sense, has nothing to do with our love back to you. It certainly results in that. It certainly brings that about and perfects that. But your love for us is of your own choosing. And so, Father, as we we sing, as we pray, as we partake in the Lord's table and communion today, Father, may you please, I beg of you to to, uh, convince our hearts more thoroughly today that you love your people. Father, as we are more convinced of your love for us, then may we live in a way that glorifies you. But let us understand that what brings you glory certainly is the, the fruits of a loved and loving heart. But let us not miss the reality that what chiefly brings you glory is a heart that by your gracious work, Loves, treasures, abides in your love for us. Father, for your glory, may you strengthen our joy and our trust, our abiding in you. For your glory, amen.